0: In one of your books, you described a team of five horses. They are the five spiritual faculties, and they are compared to a team of five horses. But their main description are the five spiritual faculties. Mindfulness (coughs) is in the lead and could run as fast as it wanted. There's a pair of energy and concentration which had to balance one another. What was the second pair that needed balance? Faith and wisdom. Faith is the heart quality and wisdom the mind quality. And they have to be balanced. These are five spiritual faculties which become five spiritual powers when they are perfected and are 10 of the 37 factors of enlightenment. Although they are exactly the same, their first faculties and then their powers. And the description of a team of forces is nothing but a simile, so to say, that we have to balance our concentration with mental energy, because if we don't, concentration winds up as being without any awareness and one can, one becomes drowsy or one even has a trance and the difference between concentration and trance is very easily seen if one has been concentrated and then is finished with the meditation one feels extremely energetic if one has had trance one wants to go to bed so, it's very easy to see. So, concentration and energy have to be uh, in harmony. If there's too much energy, there's restlessness. Then the mind and body are not tranquil. And if there's not enough energy, then the mind just doesn't have any awareness. And faith and wisdom has to have to balance because they they need to be like heart and mind faith is a quality of love and connectedness and wisdom is a quality of understanding and both are essential for the spiritual path because we can't just use only mind we have to use our heart also and faith Is often also translated as confidence. We don't need blind faith, but we need confidence. And confidence is the opposite of skeptical doubt. So um, when confidence arises, joy usually arises with it. So all these five are needed for meditation. Hmm? Mindfulness. And mindfulness always takes the lead and uh, sort of uh, breaks the ground. I wonder if this is a mistake in the writing. How does one love wife, husband, children, etc. with being attached? I think you should say, without being attached, huh? It seems it takes a fearlessness. Could you speak more about love? I think I did last week. (laughs) Um, I think it's supposed to say, without being attached, huh? How does one love wise, husband, children? With being attached, everybody knows how to do that. I mean, (laughs) we don't have to discuss that, do we? (laughs) (laughs) It's without being attached. Um, This is a difficulty. This is a difficulty that arises for everyone. One can say that there's no exception. The attachment is then, of course, tinged with fear because what we're attached to, we don't want to lose. And because fear if equal to hate, we have a totally impure love which is constantly on the verge of being submerged in other emotions so this uh, fear that is there of losing if we can transform that into fearlessness, which it says here it seems it takes a fearlessness that we can transform that into fearlessness, that means we no longer depend upon that attachment if we no longer depend upon that attachment then fearlessness can arise no fear of loss if we don't have the fear of, of loss then we know that love is not dependent upon a few people but it's depend upon our heart quality and as soon as we find out that that's the case then we will be more interested in developing our heart quality so as we develop our heart quality we realize that loving is a matter of the skill of the heart and has nothing to do with those people whom we love it doesn't matter that we have certain people whom we love. It's the wanting to keep them which makes it all such a difficult situation. And then sometimes one doesn't keep them, and then it's a real tragedy. It's not only because they aren't there anymore, it's because one feels then as if one isn't lovable, which is, of course, nonsense because whether we are lovable or not is not the point the point is whether we can love and the more we can love, the more love we feel and in that case, if we can learn that then we can use the love we have for wife, husband, children can use it as a starting point at least we know what it feels like and then letting go of that clinging to these people because we imagine that they are mine which is of course a totally wrong view nothing in this world can be mine if there's anything that could be mine would be the karma resultants everything else cannot be mine so we have this wild idea that certain people are mine and therefore have to be kept but if the heart is full of love it can change those ideas because it can love wherever and whoever there is so that would be quite an way of learning to expand and extend one's loving uh, capacity and when it becomes perfected, it is called in the Buddhist terminology, immeasurable it becomes immeasurable and then the fear of losing certain people will also vanish because the clinging to them has vanished. But the fear can only vanish when the clinging has vanished, when there's no longer the idea that I have to keep that certain person because love is dependent upon that certain person. You spoke of momentary concentration, neighborhood concentration, and full concentration. Could you please describe the feeling of neighborhood concentration, as I'm not sure how to recognize it? Neighborhood concentration gives one the idea that one is constantly on the breath, while there are still some thoughts in the background. The thoughts are very fleeting, they are like um, clouds, they seem to be at the back of the head, which is of course not so, and they certainly do not need to be labeled and at that time it's important to have a little more willpower determination to stay only with the breath to become the breath and get away from that background noise of the mind it doesn't make a real noise but it uh, appears like that Neighborhood concentration is already a concentrated state where the thoughts are not solid enough to interrupt one's attention on the breath, but yet one isn't all the time on the breath, because the mind cannot do two things at the same time. So what's actually happening is that one goes from the attention on the breath to those thoughts in the background and back to the breath and back to the thoughts and back to the breath. It's stabilizing and solidifying the mind on the breath at that time and not paying any attention to anything else. What we don't pay attention to, we don't know. So whether there's any background of of strenuous thoughts. If we don't pay attention to them, they cannot disturb us. The neighborhood concentration is a very important aspect because it certainly leads to full concentration. Momentary concentration is the kind of concentration where we can be on the breath momentarily and then solid thoughts arise which take us away and then we need to label those. Can you suggest a contemplation for a judgmental, critical person? Well, for that, the loving-kindness contemplation is designed for that. May I be free of enmity. May I be free from hurtfulness. May I be free from troubles of mind and body. May I be able to protect my own happiness. And then the same thing for other people to contemplate the fact that one's judgment and one's criticism is actually negative and more on the line of hurtfulness than of lovingness will help one to see that it isn't going to be very useful. So that kind of contemplation Even if we say, may I be free from it, it still needs to be investigated. How does this arise? How does this criticism arise? Why do I do it? How does a judgment arise? Why do I do it? How can I get rid of it? What can I do differently? All those things will be extremely helpful and will be insights. And as one looks at it, may I be free from hurtfulness, again, exactly the same thing. Why does it arise? How does it arise? And how can I do it differently? What can I do better? Can you give an example of how to do karma contemplation? The first sentence is, I am the owner of my karma and we can uh, investigate whether we actually live accordingly or whether we still think that other people are the causes for our unhappiness or happiness. Do we still think that others have a hand in it or the situations or the whole um, experience, or do we realize that we own the karma resultants, and we are the only ones that own them? And are we taking full responsibility for everything that's happening to us? Or do we still think that there's something else outside of us that's acting upon us? Other people, very often, which we, we use as an excuse that it's their fault. And some people believe that there are outside forces that make them do things and that there are triggers that we can't help but react to. When we see how we react, do we actually take full responsibility? And the other thing about karma contemplation is have I made up my mind to make good karma? And if so, how am I going to do that? What have I actually decided to do to make good karma? And do I know that this is a necessary support system? Some order of swamis or monks cannot see their family because they would be too much in the world and be fed by sensual desires. How does a Theravada tradition differ in this respect? It's not forbidden to see one's family. Certainly there is a the danger of being worldly when one is with one's family, but there's also the opportunity to be their noble friend. And in many cases, that is very helpful. The Buddha said, one can do nothing which is more beneficial than teaching one's parents the Dhamma. Obviously, only if they're willing to listen. (coughs) So it's it's certainly not um, a rule not to see the family, but also it's a rule not to stay with them for too long because one can get off the path then and get back into the worldly uh, ideas that seeing one's family brings about sensual desire I'm not sure why it should do that it uh, reinforces attachment that's probably the worst of it and brings the world too near but to be the noble friend of one's family is also another important aspect and It can be very helpful for both sides, if one can manage that, and quite often it happens. When I heard you talk about the disappearance of lust, due to the delightful sensation of the first stage, first jhana, I thought, oh, that feeling. Do you think it is possible to have had the insight also from the first jhana and just not know that it is what you're calling insight? I don't know. I have no idea. The insight that lust is not a useful um, quality to have, and that one doesn't have to look for the (coughs) satisfaction outside of oneself, but has it within oneself. If that insight arises, whether one calls it insight or not, one knows it. One can call it anything one likes. One can call it understanding. One can call it uh, um, a new idea one can call it a viewpoint, it doesn't matter what one calls it, but one knows that one knows. So, the word insight is just a descriptive word, it isn't the insight itself. The insight itself has to arise for each person. A word is only a description. So I'm not quite sure to tell the truth, what is meant here. Not 100% sure. None of the teachers I have studied with mentioned the jhanas in their retreats. In a book one teacher says on page 140 they are simply profound states of unity and rest often unintegrated to the rest of our life. Simply is uh, not quite the right description, is it? A state of unity and rest is not simply. This is opposite to what you say. This quote is out of context. I haven't read the book. I can't say anything about it. But uh, I mentioned this morning that unfortunately there's a great deal of misunderstanding about the jhanas, and a great deal of um, wrong view about it. But if one has a profound state of unity and rest, that certainly isn't something to be sneered at. That is unintegrated to the rest of our life, seems a personal opinion. Personal opinions rampant. It's not what the Buddha said. All I can say is what I read to you today are the Buddha's words. If one wants a spiritual life and a spiritual path one needs a guide. One needs a guide who has shown the way to millions of people, and if we use that guide and actually follow instructions, we will know ourselves what it means. As long as we don't follow the instructions, it will be difficult. And why other teachers do something different? It's really beyond my uh, knowledge. I don't know them and I also don't know what their reasoning is, so it's all conjecture. All I can tell you is what the Buddha taught and I think it should be sufficient. I understand that the Satipatthana Sutta has all the Buddha's meditations, all the jhanas in there. Yes, I'll read it to you. This is the Maha Sutta, out of the Digha Nikaya, the long discourses, the same book that I'm teaching you out of the Potapadana Sutta. The Maha Sutta, which also comes in the middle end sayings under the name the Satipatthana Sutta. This one here is a little more uh, complete, it has a little more in it. And as the uh, fourth foundation of mindfulness, one investigates one's mind states according to a certain uh, mode. And one of the investigations is, are my mind states connected with the Four Noble Truths? And I have already mentioned the Four Noble Truths in the last week, and I'll just read to you That little paragraph concerning. And what is right concentration? The eight steps on the the noble eightfold path. Here, detached from sense desires, detached from unwholesome mental states, one enters and remains in the first jhana, which is, with initial and sustained application, born of detachment, filled with delight and joy. And and then it goes on to the second, third, and fourth jhana. Ramah Satipatthana Sutta Why it's not being taught? I can't answer that. I don't know. All I can say is it's unfortunate because it changes one's life quite dramatically. You mentioned that the point of the method is to get to the jhanas. Do you mean that if people are just watching their breath they're not meditating? Well, No, they're not. They're trying. Because if they were, they'd get into the first jhana. The minute one watches the breath long enough, without thinking, the first jhana arises. So we have methods, and I have outlined several today, which you can use in order to get into the jhanas. And as you heard me read right now, and what is right concentration, samadhi, the eighth step on the noble eightfold path. It's jhana. So no, they're not meditating, they're trying. And may they all be successful. I always thought meditating is the focus and attention on one thing, such as breath, mantra, flame, etc. Certainly, as you focus and have attention on one thing without deviating from it, First jhana arises. It's hard to believe that anyone would want to watch their breath for the rest of their lives. Maybe they do. What you call contemplation is called meditation in many books, and also done in retreats as meditation. Is this just a matter of semantics? I'll read you out of the Maha Patana Sutta. Again, one abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect of the four noble truths. How does one do that? Here one knows, as it really is, this is suffering, and one knows, as it really is, this is the origin of suffering, and so on. That's a contemplation, a contemplation of the four noble truths. A contemplation brings insight a renewed understanding on a deeper level of that which we have intellectually already understood. A meditation is in the first instance geared towards becoming calm and tranquil and therefore the jhanas. As one has experienced the jhanas, one then uses them to gain insight. And then the insight arises out of a deep state of calm and tranquility, and is not pondering or thinking, but an inner knowing. So there are, of course, also meditation methods which are geared only for insight. And they are very useful, and we will get to them also. We will discuss them and do them. One of them, which we did already, is the sweeping. It's geared towards insight. It can also produce calm. But contemplation is a different matter altogether. As you can see, one contemplates mind objects, content of mind, in respect to the Four Noble Truths. This is only one uh, example. Now, a mind object is also the contemplation on the loving-kindness. May I be free from enmity, from hurtfulness. But, then it says, is loving-kindness a contemplation or a meditation? Loving-kindness meditation is a meditation. Loving-kindness meditation is supposed to bring up a feeling and can be entry to first jhana. Loving-kindness contemplation is an investigation into one's mind states. Am I full of enmity, hurtfulness, and so on? What's my happiness? The contemplation of the mind objects, of one's mind states. Whereas loving-kindness meditation brings one to the feeling. If one is only thinking it, it will eventually bring one to the feeling. If one keeps on doing it if one is um, persevering and really um, patient and keeps on doing that. Now, is that clear? That's quite important to know the difference between contemplation and meditation. It Is, uh, is that quite clear? Or does anybody have any uncertainty about what is a contemplation and what is a meditation? Anybody not... Yet clear about that. Okay. May I be healthy, happy, and peaceful? May mm, I be healthy, happy, and peaceful? No. I we haven't said that, have we? Exactly that we have looked at our mind states more than that. So, that wouldn't be a meditation. That would be a contemplation because one would try to ascertain how one can actually go about getting that wish uh, really uh, manifested. It's an investigation. It's not uh, Not a meditative uh, process where the mind just focuses and becomes one-pointed. But when I try to give love to one person, I can focus on that feeling, and that's a meditation. Is that clear? Or shall we try? Once more. Is that clear? Sorry. Well, you can call it that, I suppose. If you can focus on it and bring up the feeling, then it's a meditation. But uh, we're doing here meta meditation every evening, and that's meditation. And we also learned loving-kindness contemplation, and that was a contemplation, where we investigate what is going on within us. So if we can bring up the feeling and focus on it, and stay with it, and have that one-pointedness, then that's a meditation. Both are very important. Contemplations and meditations are both important. It's um, possibly also important uh, to um, just stay with the things that we're doing here and then worry about what other people say and do after the retreat and uh, sort it out what one likes better after the retreat and not try and sort it out now because it takes a mind off what one really wants to do if we try to sort out what others are saying and writing and doing we'll be very busy there are thousands of books on Buddhism nowadays And none of them are alike. So I I don't think that that's a really useful endeavor at this point in time. We're actually here to do it. So we're doing it. And then when we get home, we will sort it all out. And maybe decide we like something else much better. Not this, something else. That's fine. No problem. It's entirely up to each person. But to try and sort it out now is, makes the mind too busy and takes it off its real purpose of concentration. Could you please <coughs> tell us the connection, if there is one, between insight and intuition? Well, there could be one. But the way people usually use the word intuition, it's more as if there is a feeling what they should be doing in the future. And that's not really insight. If that's what the intuition produces, it doesn't have any connection with insight. Intuition sort of like an inner feeling of where one should go and what one should um, do and with whom one should talk and how one should act. And that's not insight. Insight, in the traditional way of its meaning, is always connected to (laughs) anicca-dukkha-anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness, substancelessness non-self, either one of the three. Now, obviously, it can be also an insight into any part of those, so that maybe one of these three things do not come out so clearly. But, basically, that's where insight goes to. And it isn't a feeling of what one should do, or how one, whom one should see, and, uh, which is usually what people talk about when they talk about intuition. Um, more, intuition seems to be more used, the word, on the level of telepathy. Well, that's not insight. Insight is an understanding, a real understanding of what's happening to one as a human being and seeing it in a totally different way from the way we usually do. So, maybe they don't have any connection. The similarity of it is that insight can be a spontaneous arising. A spontaneous arising of seeing things in a different way. And so is intuition a spontaneous arising. So there we have, possibly, the connection. But I don't think that there's anything further as far as the connection goes. Buddhism is 2,500 years old and things are a lot different in our society today. Many religions have stayed strict fundamentalists. Buddhism has changed in different countries and through the influence of other religions, such as Bon in Tibet and Taoism in China. A respected teacher has updated the precepts. For example, in regard to sexual misconduct, he has changed it to a long-term committed relationship. I interpret that, as not necessarily being married, and possibly a homosexual relationship. To that one can say, that marriage, and such relationships, similar, are very much depend upon, the society we live in. In Tibet, It's perfectly all right, or used to be anyway, perfectly all right for a woman to have as many as four husbands. In our society, that would be somewhat frowned upon. In a traditional Muslim society, it's perfectly all right for a man to have four wives. We don't like that either. However, We are perfectly happy for people to live together without being married. So, must be okay in our society. And also, most people who give it some thought, find it alright if there is a homosexual relationship. So, if it's a committed one, as is said here. In Sri Lanka, if one would admit to a homosexual relationship, I think nobody would ever talk to one again. Different countries, different society, different ideas. So what's all right here is not all right over there, and likewise. When I was explaining the precepts, I went further than that. I said that to... Undertake the training to abstain from sexual misconduct has as its training, on the other side of it, as the opposite, the training that one is responsible, reliable, and stays with not only one sexual partner, but also one's friends, and has a feeling of responsibility towards the people that one is together with and one's family. However, to change the traditional precepts on a level where one actually uses that for taking them is not a given possibility in the ordained Sangha. Lay people can do what they like. But in the ordained Sangha, that's not possible. Because... The precepts are recited and chanted in Pali. And this one, when it's chanted in Pali, it's just translated into English, and uh, or German, or wherever we happen to be. And we can't just change that. This is the traditional way of taking refuge in precept. That we explain them on that level, and even more so, then this one is a matter of course, so that we know what is meant and how we should actually address such a precept. But changing it on an official level, that can only be done by lay people. We could never do that. There's no way that that would be acceptable. And it's not even acceptable if we wanted it that way. Because it is such an old tradition and has with it um, a feeling of being embedded within a large community of those who take refuge and precept, that to be outside of that and make oneself different from that is again a separation. So. We wouldn't ever think of doing that. And the same for the next one. In the precept of refraining from alcohol and drugs, he has added other intoxicants, which he says are violent TV and other unhealthy forms of the media. What do you think of this updating? Well, when I was talking on this last day of the course we had, I did mention that we should refrain from letting our minds be soiled by the media, particularly television. And uh, that, I would say, is a very useful uh, way of trying to keep one's mind pure and having health food for the mind that's the way I expressed it but again we can't change the precept we can't change the traditional way of reciting it chanting it and being embedded within a very large community 500 million Buddhists in the world most of them would be taking precept and refuge and and uh, In this tradition, we would stay with the way it has always been done. But as I said before, a layperson can do what they like. They can make up precepts as they go along. But both of the ideas that are expressed are totally valid. It's just no way that we can put that into an official form. But we can explain them, and people will undoubtedly take notice of that. There is so much input from this course to absorb and put into practice, we cannot do it all at once. Some teachers suggest to practice mindfulness by by a simple act, such as breathing before opening and closing doors, sitting down, answering the telephone. I wonder what is meant. We always breathe. (laughs) Whether we open a door or not. I would guess that what is meant is that one pays attention to one's breath and then opens a door. It can be helpful. Can you offer some hints of how we can utilize the lessons in the first week, months, three months, etc., when we return to the real world. Well, the first thing that we would, um, one could um, debate about is, is this unreal? It's just as real as anything else. Yes, I can certainly offer some hints. Do it now, while you're here. And then take it with you when you get home and you've already become used to it. Don't think of the future. Do it this moment. Practice mindfulness in every waking moment as you're here. That's what you're here for. Practice everything that you've been taught. These are tools got plenty of time during each day to use those tools and as you use the tools and not think of the future and not think of the past but just use the tools they become familiar and then it's much easier to use them at home The tools are loving-kindness, sweeping, watching the breath, walking meditation. Four kinds of meditation. Mindfulness, outside of the meditation, and three kinds of contemplation. You don't have to do every contemplation You don't have to do it every day. And they don't need to take more than 10 or 15 minutes. But if you don't do them, they'll be so unfamiliar by the time you get home that they'll be like a foreign country. You do them now. Mindfulness, now. The meditation practices, now. The contemplation, And then it doesn't take much to take that into one's life. I have been here since the beginning. Usually when I'm away, I miss my wife after a few days, except when I've gone to New York City. It takes me a week to get lonely since I'm busy every moment and there's so much excitement and input. Here I do not have as comfortable surroundings or as nice weather as at home, and it is the same routine each day, yet I don't miss her. (laughs) Or being in my very comfortable home. I know this is very personal, but it seems odd to me. Can you offer some possible reasons? My longest retreat up till now has been four days. Well, yes, I can offer uh, a possible reasons. Namely, that hearing the Dhamma and trying to practice it, even on a limited scale, does have a totally different ambience than ordinary life, including New York City. (laughs) It's uplifting and inspiring, and if one takes some of it in, it can be also soothing. So, if one feels uplifted and inspired, and the mind is a little bit calmer than usual, one doesn't miss all the input that one usually has. Also, another thing is that if we take it seriously, to um, get to know ourselves, to make that inner journey, there's a lot of input there. And it can be quite a bit of excitement. Not all of it pleasurable, of course. Some of it may be quite um, daunting. But, There's a lot of it going on, so that can take the place of all the outer conditions that we usually have. In any case, if one gets concentrated, one doesn't miss the world at all. So, whichever way it's happening, it's a good happening. In the United States, many of the teachers of Theravadan meditation are from a Jewish background. It seems odd that there are so many of such a minority group. Could it be because there do not seem to be enlightened Jewish elders? (laughs) What about enlightened Christian elders? Hmm? These days. Or... Does the Jewish tradition emphasise, a Jewish tradition's emphasis on learning, was, is it responsible or some other factor? Well, I have a standard answer for that one. Obviously, I've been asked before. The Jews invented tukka, and the Buddha explained it. <laughs> <laughs> and you're welcome to pass that one on (laughs) last night I dreamt I had a baby well not exactly since I'm a man such a thing (laughs) such a thing is unlikely although I suppose it could happen in a dream anyway I was handed an infant and told he or she was mine I felt a wondrous and wonderful love for the peaceful little baby in my arms, though this love was tainted with pride, I believe. In the morning, when in the group meditation, my neighbor was breathing softly and peacefully as if asleep. Again, I felt the gentle love of my dream, this time for the peaceful creature beside me. But if he was asleep, he was not meditating, And perhaps I shouldn't have been so happy for him. Is my loving-kindness misdirected? (laughs) Obviously, I myself was not meditating. (laughs) Yes, that's
1: obvious.
0: (laughs) Should I have directed the loving-kindness toward myself and used it as a meditation? Well, the first thing I would like to tell you is that I had a new baby grandson last night. So maybe your dream had something to do with that. (laughs) Although this is far away in Australia. And I found out about it uh, today, but it happened yesterday evening. And all is very well. And he's called David. <laughs> yes, um, loving kindness is never misdirected. Even if a person is not doing what they were intending to do, it's uh, much better to have loving kindness towards that person than trying to think, well, look at that, he's fast asleep, and I'm not. <laughs> 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 so, it's, it's much better to have loving-kindness, and it's not misdirected. It never is. Um, then, yes, to use it for a meditation towards oneself, and maybe all the other people in the room, would have been very useful, and um, would have been a very um, useful meditation this dream about the baby and the love which arose, that feeling one could resurrect in memory because then it becomes present. If there is a lack of loving-kindness in one or a lack of compassion or if one feels uh, threatened by somebody or alienated from someone, If there's any kind of that negativity, it's very helpful to bring up the feeling of that dream with the baby again. Of course, it could also mean that the person who's writing it would like to have a baby. So, that is also possible. And, uh, babies are helpful in getting loving kindness and compassion to arise because There's no other way to deal with them. Just none. So one is forced to have that arise. But if there isn't a real baby uh, around yet or isn't going to be, it's very helpful to bring up that feeling. Anytime that one has the um, feeling that one needs more loving kindness. And um, also, apparently... In that dream, the loving-kindness was particularly uh, strong. So one could also try to use that remembrance of that feeling to start out loving-kindness meditation. It could be helpful. And uh, it gives one sort of an um, idea what it could be like. It, um, all of that could be helpful. And um, it's never misdirected. And, uh, yes, it should be used as a meditation. It would have been probably quite a good loving-kindness meditation because it was so shortly after the dream. This afternoon I practiced the sweeping method according to your suggestion. As I used my mind like a slowly opening fan, I noticed my head started to swing and turn in circles. This happened in just a few minutes. If I don't use my willpower to stop the movement, I think it may go on and getting big. When I stop the practice, I feel a little headache and nausea. Later on, I shift my attention to the breath in the belly. Then my headache started to go away. Am I on the right track? I don't know. know. Actually, if the head swings or turns uh, outwardly, one should definitely stop that in the sweeping. And um, just even open one's eyes and stop the whole thing. Um, if there's a headache and nausea, it, nausea is actually a sign that it could be working very well. A headache is usually a sign that one is trying too hard. And uh, through the sweeping method, one can easily let go of a headache by just going out through the ears, from the pain uh, spot out through the ears, either both or the one, if it's on one side, and do that often enough so that it um, disappears. Headache is a sign of trying too hard, and nausea can be a sign of it working quite well the um the sweeping the um the sweeping method if it doesn't if that one ever a in a what's it in a fan no? yeah. Yeah, if it's been a fan method and the concentration isn't very good, then it isn't doing its job. So, this, in that method, it's designed for concentration. If the concentration becomes really strong on the breath, well, then that would be better. It's, I can't tell. In the four parts of mind, doesn't perception as recognition sometimes arise before feeling? That is, sense contact, a spider, how awful, rather than sense contact, how awful, a spider. Both are perception. How awful is perception and spider is perception. They're both labels. In fact, how awful is already the um, mental formation of reaction. So, the feeling is just left out. Most people do. Never become aware of the feeling that arises from the sense contact. So, the sense contact is the seeing, and the labeling is the spider, and how awful is the reaction. You can also call them Bosa labeling, but how awful is already the reaction. Because why is a spider awful? Some people might think it's very nice looking. That's one's own reaction. So the feeling has been left out. And uh, it never arises before the feeling, but the feeling is not noticed. What do you suggest to be able to stay concentrated on just developing concentration without an element of trying or efforting coming in around achieving a state you're supposed to reach? This, if I understand the question correctly, is the worldly way of looking at things, wanting to get something. In order to get concentrated, one needs to let go. There's nothing to get. Everything's already there within, inside of oneself. Got to let go. So the um, development of concentration arises when we let go. Let go of everything that could possibly arise in the mind, primarily achieving a state one is supposed to reach. One isn't supposed to do anything. One isn't supposed to reach anything. One isn't supposed to achieve anything. One's just supposed to be concentrated, and that one can only do if one lets everything else go. So this is a worldly way of looking at things. This is the achievement syndrome, with which the whole... um, business sector of mankind is so concerned that they get ulcers. We don't want to get ulcers from meditation, do we? Hmm. What can we do to reinforce trust that our feelings, that our feelings are true and not just our imaginings, especially with regards to the jhanas, but to life in general also. Do the sweeping. That's Vedana Nupashuna. Vedana Nupashana is the second base of mindfulness. Mindfulness of feeling and sensation. The more one gets in, in touch with one's feelings and sensations, the more one knows what they're all about. If one doesn't trust one's own feelings, very difficult, very difficult to live. Whose feelings can we trust? The next person? So, trusting one's own feelings is essential in every aspect and very often they are far more important than our thought process. So, the sweeping, gets one in touch with the feelings and sensations, but also, outside of meditation, to be aware of feelings. If one has practiced indifference, one has a hard time. That's a barrier, the blockage, the armor. So if one knows oneself to be indifferent, sweeping is the best answer because that's when it becomes difficult to get at one's feelings and if the person doesn't like the sweeping it's a sure sign that that's what's happening so that needs to be done then it's an absolute indication that whoever um, has trouble trusting their own feelings will might not like the sweeping and therefore needs to do it because that's the the best, easiest way to get in touch especially if we can find that there is a, a blockage particularly in the chest area hardness or anything that blocks one from feeling anything then we have been practicing to stand apart aloof, someone who practices indifference feels like a spectator and not like a participant. A spectator gets easily bored with the whole thing because it isn't always interesting and never feels as if he or she is really experiencing what's going on. It's always looking at it. That's the result of the practice of indifference. And that practice is damaging to one's love and compassion. It's damaging to one's heart quality. So I don't know (laughs) whether that's the case or not, but if it is, then the sweeping is the most helpful thing to do. I was surprised to hear that no karma is produced through dreaming during sleep. Can you tell us more about what the Buddha said about the relationship between sleep, dreaming, and practice? He said nothing. Absolutely nothing. The thing that he said about sleep was that one should sleep mindfully. But in order to do that, One has to have a fully trained mind. It means that one sleeps and knows that one is sleeping. And if it happens for the first time, one thinks one isn't sleeping. But the rest that one gets is the same or more than when one is in deep sleep. Dreams, he said, we have enough to do with what we're conscious of never mind all the stuff that comes out of the unconscious. The only time that he talked about dreams in a sutta was when somebody, a king, wanted to make war because of a dream he'd had, and he stopped him from that. But he he had no interest in explaining dreams In fact, he forbade it to monks and nuns, that they should explain dreams. Because sometimes people make money out of that. And it's not useful. Not useful for the goal. There's one single goal in the Buddha's teaching. And everything that he teaches and talks about is directed toward that goal. I was told that the word then comes from the Chinese chan, which derives from the Sanskrit jhana. Is this related to the Pali jhana? No. I believe the Sanskrit word means sitting meditation. No, it doesn't. It means wisdom. Jhana, D-H-Y-A-N-A means wisdom, and jhana, J-H-A-N-A, means meditative absorption. So, um, it's quite true, this derivation is quite true, but it has nothing to do with jhanas. You mentioned several times that the pleasant physical sensation as experienced in the first absorption is always there, but often it's covered, and we don't have access to it. You mentioned also that only that exists which we're experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. Not quite. That only that exists for us, on which we put our mind. So how does one really know if pity is always there? If one has become practiced and skilled at entering First Jhana on demand, one knows. Any time one wants to enter First Jhana on demand, it's there. So one knows. It's nothing that we can put in there. It's always there. We can only find what's already there. If we didn't have the seed of enlightenment within us, nobody's going to put enlightenment into us. All we have to do is develop it. We've got it all within. We just got to choose the right things to develop and cultivate. Could the same be true for feelings like pain or emotions like anger or greed? Unfortunately, yes. You remember, I showed you this little. Jack-in-the-box here, it's always in there, and it loves to come out, because it feels really claustrophobic in there. (laughs) Sure, all those feelings are there, but with the um, anger and greed, we have a chance. We can develop the wholesome roots so that the unwholesome ones eventually can be uprooted. The PT is part of our purity of original mind and uh, no reason to get rid of that. Or do you mean that we always would have the possibility getting to it through concentration I'm afraid I don't see the difference yes we can get to it through concentration because it's always there we don't have to wait to arrange anything or to make it happen it's always there and as I said if one is already practiced at Sajanas, All one has to do is have a mind moment of intention, and that's it. And I have said that that's extremely useful, particularly in a dentist's waiting room. The only way I could become aware of not having an eye would be by attaining another level of consciousness. I don't think I can get at it through intellectual deduction, such as saying, I'm not this nor that. I mean, I'm already intellectually convinced that my body isn't me, but that doesn't get me very far. And I think there is a real danger of alienation, psychological breakdown in thinking and intellectualizing about, is there an I? Well, the Buddha didn't seem to think so. He advised it and recommended it. Not in those words, is there an I? But he recommended and advised to understand and to look at what is mine, what is me, and where do this idea actually come from. My instinct is to drop it all well, it's certainly more convenient, and just try to develop my concentration in meditation, chip away at the five hindrances, practice mindfulness, and so on, and trust that I will eventually be led through doing those things to the understanding that there is no I. Do you think that is okay? It's okay as far as it goes, but... On the way to developing calm, developing insight helps. We only have those two pathways of meditation, calm and insight. And so, if we develop a little bit of insight, we develop a little bit of calm, and vice versa. With a little bit of calm, we get a little bit of insight. Naturally, if we want total and complete and profound insight. We need total, complete and profound calm. But surely on the pathway there, it is helpful to develop a bit of everything. And as we develop a bit of everything, we have a much better chance of seeing the whole picture. The Buddha did not think that one would have a psychological breakdown if one investigates what this me illusion is all about on the contrary he he more advised that if one didn't want a psychological breakdown then one should investigate the me illusion actually the whole of the teaching is 180 degrees opposed to worldly thinking and that's what makes it often difficult to really feel what the teaching is all about. An intellectual understanding that the body isn't me is a good beginning. Okay, now what about the mind? Next question. And if there is an intellectual understanding, that's also a good start. At least there is, there's not any longer the question And who is thinking that that's not me? So it's very useful to get an intellectual understanding to find quite clearly within one's realization and understanding that everything that happens are just phenomena happening arising and ceasing without any pause often causing a lot of irritation not conducive to peace and happiness and yet continuing to arise and cease and if we have an understanding on that level we may be able to go, go on towards a deeper understanding obviously the other things have to be done too mindfulness mindfulness chipping away at hindrances, and developing concentration. But there are also those people, and they are not so rare, that can develop concentration far better on an inside practice. They are just not able to get concentrated on the breath. There are lots of people like that. Their mind is too intellectually geared towards analysis. And particularly in the West, we find that a lot, because that's the way we've been educated. So, if that should be the case, inside practice can bring enough concentration so that eventually the mind does really become absorbed. So, both ways are possible. And that's why I've also started explaining the insight practice and why there will be other means of using the practice to gain insight. very nice there's one person that's a diligent question writer so we have a lot of questions it's the same handwriting (laughs) after the breath appears to stop I notice when I try hard the pleasant sensation does not arise but when I just let go it happens spontaneously that's right it's a nice feeling but would it be bad to develop a craving for it very bad We already have enough cravings. We don't need another one. One has to, having had the nice feeling, one needs to do three things and not forget. That too is impermanent. How did I get there and what am I learning? And every time we see that too is impermanent, the craving is at least minimized. I was enjoying the pleasant sensation but the bell rang for breakfast. I continued enjoying the feeling for another five minutes and would have liked to stay with it longer but my mind told me I might miss breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, it depends what's more important, isn't it? If there's any chance of craving, it's impossible to let go, and then it doesn't happen. So, one needs to be very sure that one looks at the impermanence of it all, especially when one goes to breakfast. The last three nights I don't feel tired at night and don't seem to need much sleep. Is this a natural occurrence of meditation? Yes, very much so. If the mind becomes concentrated, it has far more rest than it could ever have in sleep. So it isn't that concerned with having as many hours of sleep as it usually has. It needs far less. And one can use the extra time for meditation or contemplation, because at home one's not going to have that much time again or at least one thinks one doesn't have as much time. So it's a very um, um, good occurrence if one doesn't need so much sleep, because it means the mind's concentrated. In the evening loving-kindness you have used symbols of a golden vessel and a golden light. Does the color gold have special significance in Buddhist symbolism? Nothing at all except the fact that one thinks of gold as being valuable. And uh, therefore, one uses it in visualizations and also paintings. And very often it is used on um, gold leaf, on Buddha statues. People who are devoted will put gold leaf on Buddha statues as a sign of their reverence, their devotion, and trying to offer something that's valuable. So it's only a symbolic um, occurrence to use gold, and it brings that to mind. Value, beauty, gold has that um, connotation. For a few days I was doing a contemplation or a scanning, and the breath stopped, but I continued with my scanning. Two days ago you said if we feel the stopping of breath to go with that and stop the scanning. Today I was so involved with the scanning that I did not realize the breath stopped until I paused after finishing the back part of the body. It had probably stopped a few minutes before. Any suggestion? I didn't say to go with with the stopping of the breath. There's nothing to go when the breath has stopped. I said when the breath becomes so fine or can't be found at all, to go within and find the delightful sensation because at that time a delightful sensation should be arising. So if that happens, the concentration happens with, I presume scanning is the uh, sweeping, that if it happens with the sweeping, one can stop the sweeping and go to the delightful sensation, one doesn't have to. One can finish the sweeping and then, having finished it, one can start again and come to the point where the mind is so concentrated that one can go inside to find the delightful sensation. There's no way one can go with the stopping of the breath because what is one going to look at? What is one going to become aware of? If the mind says the breath has stopped, then the thinking has started. So that isn't useful. And uh, having found that it stopped and then thinking it stopped earlier, That's a thinking process. So if one doesn't realize that the concentration is very sharp, just continue with the sleeping. It's just as well to go all the way through. One can stop and go to the sensation. I've done labeling at other retreats, but mostly I'm told to just follow the breath. Should I continue labeling in my regular practice at home, since this is the same person that had that delightful sensation and went to breakfast, um, I would like to suggest that having got into first jhana, that's the practice at home. Labeling is only necessary, and watching the breath is only necessary in order to get to the concentration. Having got there, we don't need either. Labeling is a device in order to help us gain some insight, also to see that the observer is no longer the thinker and make the thought disappear, dissolve. Um, the breath is a device to get concentrated. That's all it is, a key. So, since that same person was so delight, delighted with the sensation and kind of reluctantly went to breakfast, that's a practice. That's what we do. The jhanas are the practice of meditation. Samma Samadhi, right concentration. I read it out of the out of the book of the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. Right concentration are the jhanas. Why use a key when we've got the door open? It's not useful, not at all. And I wonder whether that is now clear. It ought to be. I have really talked about it over and over again. We've got methods. We've got ways and means of getting concentrated. But once we are what do we need the method for? It's like going to driving school and having this driving uh, teacher next to you so that you don't run into the first tree. And then you finally learn to drive and then you take this guy along all the time. <laughs> when having learned to drive, one just sits down and drives. Having learned to meditate, one sits down and meditates.